This is Ian Sattler, Senior Story Editor at DCU. Hi, this is Mundo DeFilippis. And Christina Weir. Hi, this is Kevin Vandell. Hi, this is Lieber Mayo. Hi, this is Brian Ezraeli. Hi, this is Matt Wagner, author of Batman and the Monster Man and Batman and the Mad Monk. Hey, this is Mike Martz, Batman Group Editor. Hey, this is Ethan Van Skybro. My name is Neil Adams. This is Paul Dini. This is Robert Greenberger. And this is Jerry Robinson. Hey, this is uh, Will Spertaccio. This is Adam Beechin, and you're listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast, episode number 73. I'm your host, Dustin, and today we have with us... We got Josh. This is Donovan. And Joe is currently on holiday, as it is better known as vacation here in the United States. He's on holiday and will not be with us for this episode. But this episode is going to be a little bit shorter because we are only covering news from July 25th to July 30th. And the comic book reviews are from July 20th and July 27th. We do have eight books to cover, though, that did come out during those two weeks. But as for news, because this is week after Comic-Con, there's not a whole lot of news, as is very expected. So, we'll go through the news, we'll have our comic book reviews, and then we'll have Bat Books for Beginners, Bat Book Delays, and we'll have a short little discussion, and then we'll leave you with a shorter episode than normal, but uh, every once in a while it's nice to switch things up. So let's get into our only piece of news. On July 29th, DC revealed through an advertisement flyer that was um, distributed through retailers a QRC code, or a QR code, QRC, QR code, it's one of those two. It's those little little tags that you see that are a bunch of black and white dots that look like they're pixelated in a square. And you scan them with your smartphone using a specific app, and then in turn, this the, the smartphone then automatically knows what to do based on the tag and brings you to wherever you need to go through your phone. For instance, with this code, it brought you to a subsite on DC where you could actually preview some art from a number of different issues, including Batman number one and, and Detective Comics number one. But this also revealed the new logos for the two series. The the logos are interesting. The Detective Comics logo kind of seems like we've seen it before. It's, in my mind, not very different than past Batman logos for the Batman comic series. The Batman one's kind of interesting just because it's a bat signal with the letters Batman kind of the bottom half of the bat signal actually the curve kind of like a upside down triangle it's hard to describe the best thing to do is to look at the website if you're wanting to see these logo it's under dc promo ads reveal new logos and also in that same article there's also the preview art for both batman and detective comics the detective comics doesn't look so bad but uh the batman logo to me it looks it looks too much like batman arkham asylum the the game series first of all and I mean, it's not bad. I just, I just don't kind of prefer it. It looks too hard-edged, I suppose. Yes, Don is not kidding. This thing, like, yeah, I'm really expecting to see Arkham Asylum under Batman. The Detective Comics thing is nothing new. I'm glad that they're putting Batman's name on Detective Comics. The art's looking good for Batman issue one. I mean, the the art's good. I'm still very, very on the fence about this uh, reboot. I don't care what they say. It's a reboot. 
hey, at least the art's good. I mean, they got to do something, right? True. They, they do have to do something. That's very, very thoughtful. I got to say, the preview art, at least for Batman, looks interesting. The preview art for Detective Comics, on the other hand, I'm not finding as interesting because it just seems very similar to what we've seen from Tony Daniel in the past. Now, obviously, the story is really what's going to come down to because his art's not really going to change that much from his work on Batman right now to Detective Comics. Although he's not right, he's not drawing Batman right now anyway. He hasn't drawn Batman for quite a couple months now. But Capullo's art is very interesting. I'm looking forward to this art and pair it with a Scott Snyder story. I think it's going to be another instant classic creative team as far as story goes yeah there's nothing like that is preventing me from being still being excited for uh, snyder capullo's batman that's there are a lot of changes in the batman universe there are a lot of like crazy things going on with this relaunch but this is the one thing that's going to be good at least i hope it's going to be good and there's nothing that's going to really change that for me until until i read it hopefully what they say on the page and then the solicitations may be totally horrible but hey at least you know if you're not reading the words the pictures might look pretty (laughs) <laughs> all right so like i said that's all of the news we've got let's get right into our comic book reviews because like i said we do have eight books to cover so the very first book we have is batman number 712 i am vengeance i am the knight i am batman written by tony daniel illustrated by steve scott this issue begins with the Riddler and his daughter and cronies all raiding the old Falcone home. They don't know exactly what Riddler is searching for, but they are killing everyone around the way just to, just to search for it. We also cut to Batman crashing through the abandoned bar that he was at a few issues ago. While we see the title of, a, of this issue, Part 3, Gilded Lily. He finds a wounded gunman and uh, demands to know where Two-Face is. We then cut to the East Empire construction zone where Mario Falcone and Gilda Dent are supposed to meet a fellow crook when all of a sudden they are ambushed by Two-Face and his men. Falcone goes crazy and starts to strangle Gilda before she's saved by none other than Two-Face. Batman arrives on the scene and, and while he's fighting the goons, Two-Face and Gilda start conversing where Two-Face tells her how betrayed he's felt. Gilda says she's always and still is believing in Harvey Dent. But... You know, Two-Face being the guy with more than one scheme up his, up his sleeve has several bombs loaded and starts detonating all of them with Batman escaping the last possible second. He means to save Gilda's life once Harvey starts to attack her, but she turns around and shoots him in the head. The cowl saves Dick's life, but he wakes up back in the, the Bat Bunker and asks Alfred, who tells him that Damien brought him back to the Bat Bunker, if he recognized a woman near him. And Alfred says there was no woman to be found. He's also delivered a letter from Katrina Falcone saying that she's giving up being cat girl for good. Hooray! We end this, <laughs> we end this issue with back to the Riddler who has finally found what he was looking for the entire time in the old Falcone home, which are evidences to his previous forms as the Riddler earlier in his life. His daughter Echo says she doesn't understand and he says, Riddle me this, what's purple and green and bleeds profusely? As she says, no, what are you? Hi! The end. Batman number 712, this is a perfect example of why I'm not super looking forward to Detective Comics, mostly because, again, we have an issue that has a number of different threads that Tony Daniel was clearly trying to wrap up in some sense because this is his last issue of Batman because next month has a fill-in issue by Fabian Nassiza. 
so what's interesting about this is really nothing. I I don't have anything that's interesting about this. I I have to wonder if Riddler's actually going to kill Enigma. I guess getting rid of Enigma and uh, Catgirl at the same time is, is kind of amusing. Because those were two characters that nobody was really fond of in the first place. In addition to that, the whole Gilda and Harvey fight just seems kind of forced. It seems like basically what's occurring is Gilda's back for no apparent reason. She's not serving a purpose in the story other than to provide an avenue for Harvey Dent slash Two-Face to actually appear in the story. And that's a stupid reason. We get the Falcones being systematically taken down by the Riddler and then Harvey's kind of war-type army people during the whole skyscraper scene. So the Falcones are pretty much gone. So basically what we're left with at the end of Tony Daniels' run is he brought back the Falcones only to take them away. He introduced Catgirl only to get rid of her. He introduced Enigma only to get rid of her. He started this mystery with Riddler, which we know nothing more about, and that's it. That's what's come out of this. Nothing worthwhile has come out of this giant story arc that Tony Daniels has been writing on Batman since he began. And it's sad to say that, you know, despite the fact that the art is actually pretty good for this issue, it the story doesn't do anything for me. It's just, I wish that there was actually more happening. And just taking all of the issues that were written from Tony Daniel and putting them all together, I really have to contemplate why DC is putting him on Detective Comics come September. I, to me, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I'm going to give this one and a half out of five batterings. It's okay. We have Batman punching Then Half of it, I don't know what the mask is. It's not like, you know, the traditional like Spider-Man type thing where it's like, you know, you see half of his face symbolically like it looks like it's ripped which it's not ripped in the story but like i guess it's there to show like the duality of like oh look you know two-face has two faces oh but dick grayson as batman has two faces too they're the same it's duality i guess that's what the cover is trying to say but that's just stupid it's like aside from like the fact that dick grayson has a secret identity as batman there's like i don't really see the duality between Batman and Two-Face. I know it's a cover, it's a minor thing, but it's just like, th- 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 that annoyed me. It was like, look at them, they're the same, but they're not. <sighs> I believe in Harvey Dent, great fan service, you know, for the, you know, Nolan fans. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, okay, you know what? I should be fair. I believe in Harvey Dent, you know, was actually... Yeah, that was Jeff Lowe, because he did that in the long hallway. In fact, you know, that's what—that's the very last thing that Gilda says at the end. So I, I take that back. You know, it's just I associated so much with the Dark Knight. Now, so actually, in retrospect, like, as I'm, as these words are coming in my mouth, that is pretty cool how, like, the long Halloween is I believe in Harvey Dan, and that's, like, kind of coming back now. I hope that's why, you know, Tony Daniel did it, because he, like, read that story and was, like, bringing back this thing and not just, you know, doing something because he saw it in the movies. Well, we would hope so, since he's brought Gilda back, too. Yeah, and Mario. As long as Gilda doesn't say, don't you remember, Harvey, when I was tied up in that warehouse and Batman came to <laughs> Don't you remember back when I looked like uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal and a- or Katie Holmes? Why so serious, Harvey? It wrapped up too quickly, and it was too rushed. 
we have this whole like that cliffhanger with the Riddler and like, no, what are you doing? Ah, like, I don't know. That I'm tr- I'm trying to think of you know words to describe. That's just it's like something that was written for a 1960s comic book or a 1950s horror movie. It doesn't work as well in this modern age. But again, the art was. The scripts weren't as bad as they've been in the past, so I'm going to give it three out of five batterings. I think Dustin hit it on the head that this issue accomplished basically nothing. It was an interesting idea, you know, like Batman, Two-Face, Gilda, they all come to a head, Mario Falcone. And I actually kind of liked the way it was going, but, like, nothing was really accomplished at all. Again, I had problems with bringing Mario Falcone and inexplicably making him a gangster, a really, really cheesy, stereotypical gangster. And now you just, like, seemingly kill him for no reason. I mean, not that he's a classic great character or anything like that, but he had potential, and he's just gone because no reason. And, like, the scene with Two-Face and Gilda should have been so much more. Their relationship in The Long Halloween was crucial to... Harvey Dent becoming Two-Face, just in terms of, you know, what they were both capable of doing in that, in that series. So now that you have these two, these two possibly twisted people together, it's a very, very cliched, predictable, typical sort of, like, reunion. And there's, like, no real mo- emotion. There's nothing special to the artwork either. I, I, the, the coloring beats up the artwork, but the actual anatomy of the characters is really, really bad, especially Batman. Dick Grayson looks like he's on steroids. And that splash page, is, that's not very good artwork. His body's completely misproportioned. And when he's waking up in, in the Bat Bunker with Alfred, it looks like the guy is trying to draw Dick Grayson, but ends up drawing Bruce Wayne anyway. But the main problem with this story, honestly, to me, is either the, the Gilda Dent thing or it's the uh, Riddler thing. I don't understand why the Riddler's acting like this. I understand that he's tr- maybe he's trying to get like, whole pieces of his memory because it's been lost for a while. And maybe he wants to get back to the way he was. But we don't get any of it. We, and his personality is completely off. I'm not sure if I said that before, he, but I'm saying that now. He's really, really acting weird in this. And, like, I don't care if he kills his daughter or whatever, but, like, th- the whole persona thing, it's almost like he's, he's trying to be, like, the Riddler from the Batman cartoon. But even that made a lot more sense. So I didn't really enjoy this book too much at all. It's two out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, Dane gave the book one out of five batterings. Said is going to give the issue one and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue, which is Batman Gates of Gotham, number three. I'm sorry, but that's not my Batman. Written by Kyle Higgins, art by Trevor McCarthy. The issue starts off with a scene that Wayne Tower is actually being, has, has been built. We find out that the Cobblepot version of Wayne Tower is actually the Iceberg Lounge, and even though it's not a building or a giant tower... Cobblepot is completely content with it. Turns out it looks like they're looking to build a fourth bridge, and they're looking to bring in another family, and this would connect Gotham City to the Kane County, which is just north of Gotham City. Cut to present day when Batman is on the roof with Tommy Elliot, telling him that there's secrets that are being kept that Dick doesn't know. Over at the Iceberg Lounge, Cassandra and Robin end up meeting up with Batman, and they talk about how they could have stopped it, and there was no way they really could. And Penguin actually mentions that there's rumors about Batman, and it's that he's slipping, and Batman's kind of concerned about this. We then cut back to the past, where we see the two brothers talking to each other, two Gates brothers talking to each other about how things are happening. One of the brothers is very concerned that 
the wealthy families only need them for so long, and after that, what is it, what's to do? But the other brother is very optimistic after being told that he's part of the family, and because of that, he's more supportive of bringing on the fourth family. We then cut back to the future time where the Bat family consisting of Tim, Damien, Cassandra, and Dick are studying the actual suit that the Gates wore when they constructed some buildings. And as uh, Dick says that Tim and Damien need to work together to solve something, we then cut to the past where we see the the optimistic Gates brother is presented with a situation where he has to choose between the Kane bridge or another bridge going in the other direction away from King County. The problem is that Gotham City, King County is known for its kind of seed it's a seedy area and uh, connecting it might be a problem. So Gates brother ultimately decides that uh, the Wayne location is actually a better option. Uh, we then cut back to the future time where again they're talking about the suit and Tim and Damien go to find out where exactly the suit is while Cassandra and Dick go to find the files, the uh, Gotham Herald building, which the Elliots used to own, and they assumed that that's where they would find the information. When they arrive there, they find out that someone else beat them to the, to the location. We then cut to Damien and Tim, who have discovered there's a bunch of newspapers and various artifacts from Gotham's early time, and waiting in the shadows is this villain of sorts. We don't really know his name, but we then cut back to the past where they're building the the Wayne Location Bridge, and in the middle of the construction, the bridge actually collapses and kills the uh, not-so-trusting Gates brother, and that is where the issue ends. Batman Gates of Gotham number three. Overall, I thought this was a decent issue. It is very difficult to recap, as you might have been able tell just because it does cut back and forth but when you're actually reading the story it's it's not as difficult to actually get through as the way i made it seem to get through it's just hard go going back and forth between the two thoughts of what's going on because there's a distinct story taking place in the past as well as a distinct story taking in the present time and those two stories at some point are going to intersect very shortly in this mini series i actually like trevor mccarthy's art i like his art a lot more than some of the regular artists on some of the Batman series, and it would be nice to see his art pop up. I especially like his artistic style that he uses for the Gotham of the past, more so than the future, but that is understandable because it's a little bit lighter and brighter than the darkness and gloominess that there is of the Gotham present. The story overall, Kyle Higgins did an amazing job as far as, like I said, linking those two stories to kind of intersect. The, the difficult thing is just kind of describing exactly what happened. This is an excellent read. It reminds me a lot of Scott Snyder's writing in Detective Comics, especially when he has he, he shows the flashbacks. And Scott Snyder did help plot this series. As That's as far as we know. We know that he ha he's credited for the book for writing but it's or for story but it's difficult to know how much of an extent he had and how much of an extent Kyle Higgins actually had on this on each individual issue itself this this was good and I'm looking forward to number four 
four out of five batterings. It's a little hard for me personally to read the cursive narration. Like you kind of have to squint because it's. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else has that problem, but. Uh, no, I feel you. I think it's cool. It's it's good to see <laughs> family teaming up. Without, and aside from Damien, without the tension, like when was the last time you saw a Dick Grayson and Cassandra Kane team up where they didn't wind up punching each other out? Because like around the time of Bruce Wayne's death, we had like three of those stories at once. So. You know, it it, w- it was nice, and I didn't really like the whole thing with uh, Damien, where it's like, well, you just hate Cassandra because it's another person that your father picked over you, and I just hate to that like character note of Damien, where like he's, where like that that's his only character trait. Otherwise, you know, uh, the flashbacks were were cool. It's interesting to see the history of these families, like you know, and expand upon the backstory of it a little more. It's uh, it's well written, and I like. Even though we have like a gazillion members of the Batman family, even in Batman Incorporated, see them interact that much in this day and age. It's something that was like very apparent in the '90s, but like the relationships of these characters—you see Batman and Robin team up, but you don't see them like come together with like everyone else as much. So I like that here. It's written well here, and I mean, I am glad that Kyle Higgins will be part of the new direction. So four out of five batterings. Yeah, I enjoy this too. It's a very consistent series. And I will say though, it's kind of, like Josh. It's kind of hard for me to follow completely the uh, the backstory, partly because I, I think the the curse of is it's not impossible to read, but it is sort of it takes more concentration to read, and it's sort of hard for me to keep up like who's in which family, like who's in the Waynes or in the Cobblebots or the Canes or the Elliots. I kind of have to read it more than once. But once I get into like the modern stories with like the Bat Family, it's a lot more engaging for me. And really. I think that's one of the, the few Batman stories where Bruce isn't in it, and it's like, okay, besides when he was quote-unquote dead, but, like, all the Bat families together while Bruce is still around, but he's not anywhere near the series, and they're all kind of handling something, and they're all interacting differently. You have different matchups, different pair-offs, and at least a different character character interactions, which I find very fun. I like the uh, Damien thing because I don't see it as, as his only character trait but it is a consistent character trait and i felt that you know if that's who he is then that's i'll bug him i like the art too trevor mccarthy and kyle higgins are a pretty good team and i would dig it if they were uh doing nightwing somewhere down the line maybe 12 months from now i enjoyed it maybe not as much as the other issues because there was less action but i enjoyed all the same three and a half out of five better ranks all right so that is going to give the issue four out of five better ranks let's move into our next book dc retroactive batman the 1970s Captain. Written by Lynn Wine, illustrated by Tom Mandrake. This issue begins in the 70s. Well, not really, but that's the feel of the entire issue. As the Batman is guarding over Gotham City and looming over the night, he sees an explosion outside the Gotham Federal Bank. A gigantic tank with a drill shoots right through the building, and once Batman lands in the, in the area, he finds the fox, the shark, and the vulture who make up the terrible trio. They aren't really the exact same terrible trios. They have different costumes and more high-tech armory, but they call themselves the ter- terrible trio just the same. Batman battles the trio, and they make their escape through the sewer system. The next day, Bruce returns to his penthouse in the Wayne Foundation building and goes upstairs to meet his business partner, Lucius Fox. Lucius is having out with his son, Timothy, who is avoiding his studies at school to hang out with these ruffian friends of his that we can't imagine who they are already. 
So while that's going on, we see Batman later on that night trying to figure out how this new Terrible Trio came to be and why are they adopting the MO of the original Terrible Trio from like the Golden Age. Later that night at Gotham Harbor, another robbery attempt is made by the Trio and Batman is there to stop them. But they shoot a hole through the boat and get away while Batman plugs the hole with the bat sub. The next afternoon, Bruce talks to Lucius about their Wayne Foundation annual charity Skyball in the Wayne Skyrise. And later that night, he figures that the Terrible Trio are trying to rob there because they rob areas that have to do with land, sea, and air. So Batman shows up and actually defeats him this time, you know, third time's the charm. And just as both he and Lucius have suspected, one of the members, the Vulture specifically, is Timothy, Lucius's son. Batman says to Alfred that it doesn't make much sense that these kids have access to this technology. And on the last page, we revealed that Talia was the one who sent them to Gotham to plague her precious beloved once again. DC Retroactive, Batman in the 1970s. Now, clearly we only covered the actual content, the new content. There was a classic story that was included from the actual 1970s that we didn't cover, but that's not new. So we didn't cover that also because the issue is much larger than a normal issue nowadays. So it's not uh, beneficial for us to cover something that's already been released over 40 years ago. With that being said, this story, I, I kind of waver. I think Tom Mandrake did a very good job at kind of linking up the art form of what was in the 1970s. Clearly Tom Mandrake wasn't doing art in the 1970s and he wasn't on a Batman book. But it's very interesting how closely similar there are certain things. There was the Wayne Foundation building with the tree in the middle. I remember seeing pictures of this probably over a year ago when I was collecting information for a couple of different articles that I'm possibly going to be writing up. And I remember seeing pictures. And the image that he drew was almost exactly the same. The costume was clearly his interpretation of Neil Adams and Dick Giordano's art from the 1970s as well. And very, very close to the actual perception of what we would have seen in the 1970s. So that much was good. The Lenwein story is kind of interesting because of two things. Number one, the 1970s weren't known for like over-the-top stories that, you know required a lot of thoughts, required in-depth knowledge to, to really understand or, you know, back history to really understand what was going on. And that's not to say it's bad, because it's not. It's it's just that you have to know that going into this story, that it's not going to be this amazing 12-part arc story that's going to happen over a year's time frame. You have to realize that. And a lot of the stuff that was happening in the 1970s was very, very short stories happening in not long, long story arcs occurring. And knowing that, you also have to know that the 1970s wasn't, because it wasn't very distinguished with these uh, really in-depth stories, you also could figure things out possibly before even Batman did, <laughs> because that's just how it happened. Don pointed out very early on in his recap that it was made pretty obvious that the seedy characters that Timothy Fox was hanging out with were probably the same people that Batman was facing, and then in turn, Timothy ends up being one of those characters. I kind of figured that out as soon as they introduced Timothy. So this might have been something that was around, but not like not around where a lot of people would know about it. It also wouldn't make a lot of sense to have a son and have him around only to end up becoming a villain and then being carted off to jail because clearly that's what's happening. <laughs> so maybe the idea was to just 
introduce this character. I mean, I know that Lucius Fox had a role, especially because they did focus a lot on the business aspect of the Wayne Foundation and Wayne Enterprises back in the 70s, because that was interesting. Wayne Foundation was this huge thing that was involved with the Batman comics, and in turn, the business aspect, including Lucius Fox, was also included. So maybe the idea was just to have him have a son to have him included in this story. I don't know. But they did a good job at like taking very distinct things that would happen and appear in the stories from the 70s and show them. My only wonder that I have is, I wonder how long ago Len Wein actually wrote this story. Because I'm starting to really wonder to myself, because we've got Mike Barr doing the 1980s retroactive, and we've got... Alan Grant working with Norm Brayfogle doing the 90s retroactive and I really am wondering how long ago these stories were actually written and then did they find the artists well afterwards were the ideas pitched and they were just kind of backburnered and now they've decided to, to do this retroactive thing that's my only wonder and it has nothing to do with the quality of the story I'm just curious to know how long ago because it's been over two years ago, but we interviewed Norm Brayfogle, and he was telling us at the time that him and Alan Grant were pitching DC ideas all the time, and they just never picked up on them. So then, knowing that, and knowing that they're working on the 90s retroactive, made me think, how long ago did Len Wein work on this story, and then they just picked up Tom Mandrake when he was doing all the Superman, vampire, Batman, werewolf stuff. I, I just, I have to wonder. And... It's nothing bad about the story. Overall, I'm going to give this three out of five batterings. The art for um, a 1970s retrospective more like, and Don, you were reading a lot of this at the same time too. Like, did it feel more like 90s art too than 70s art? If you want my opinion, I think that it was chasing 70s art and it mostly succeeded. But a lot of like modern day stylistics with the art, with the storytelling, kind of like crept in there. But I think it was I think it was seventies. Okay, I thought that it looked very nineties, but yeah, the story, you know, like was very seventies and Lucius Fox, you know, did play a larger role back then. Like there was even a period in the seventies where Batman and Alfred were living in the Wayne Foundation building and, you know, it was uh he had the pad and like that's what Dick Grayson and Damien moved back into, um, at the beginning of the like quote unquote new era a few years ago. So it's, uh, my only thing is because they were trying to make the superior piece, I would have liked it if they would have added a little more, like, 70-isms in there. And I don't mean, like, you know, jive-talking, you know, like, pimps or anything like that. But I mean, <laughs> you know, stuff that was, like, distinctive of that era of Batman in the 70s. Like, you know, certain characters and, like, certain other stuff. But otherwise, this was, you know, a timeless story and a good story, you know. And, like, I say I wanted more characters. Like, like the terrible trio, that's, like, a very, very... It felt very, like, seeing them felt very, very 70s to me, or very Grant Morrison, depending on how you want to put it. But overall, you know, I like one line, and this shows the difference between how comic storytelling has evolved, especially with how long it took to read. You know, it took the length that it would have taken a 70s comic book to read. So I'm going to give it five out of five batterings. You know, I really like that DC did this. Yeah, this doesn't make me regret their decision to do this at all. This was very fun. I mean, there's not much to say. This is a very simple story because Batman in the 70s, DC Comics in the 70s was very simple. They were edging towards the more believable, darker stuff, but it was kind of a gradual thing where there were Silver Age tropes still there while still trying to play up to the times. So you just kind of had to roll with it. I mean, 
one of the most distinguished aspects of Batman in the 70s, especially during Neil, Daniel Neal's run where he wrote the character, is that Batman is very, very, very cocky. And I actually really, really like that because it's just fun seeing Batman sort of like play up that, yeah, I'm the best, you can't beat me, and uh, here's why. Like, he did it all the time in the, in the 70s, and uh, he does it here, which is, that's what makes this so great is that it really does... It's, it's not just the fact that there's a Wayne Foundation, there's a Lucius Fox. The attitudes and dialogue harken back to that era. And they do it without feeling dated unless you were in the know of how those books were. Josh mentioned that he thought the art looked in the 90s. And I don't know if he was saying that as a compliment or a detriment, but I thought the art was pretty good. Mandrake, his art looks a lot better than it did last year in that confidential story. I was pleasantly surprised on how the art turned out. Especially, <laughs> this is where I get a little bit of... Uh, to Tasha Heavy, but I thought that image with Talia at the very end was really, really, really good. Like, that was a really sexy-looking Talia, and I'm not actually a, too big of a fan of that character, but that really looked amazing to me. So overall, I'm probably giving this four and a half out of five Batarangs. It didn't blow me away, as the Norm Prayful Island Grant story will most likely do. It was very fun to read. So that is going to give DC Retroactive The Batman The 70s Four and a half out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, which is Flashpoint, Dead Man and the Flying Graysons, number two. Tonight's forecast, a freeze is coming. Written by J.T. Krull, art by Fabrizio Fortino. The issue starts off right where the last issue ended, with the Amazons taking over Haley's Circus, looking for the helmet of Naboo. In the wake of this... Mary Grayson, Dick Grayson's mother, ends up falling and dying. Everyone kind of scatters, including Dead Man and the other people we know as heroes from the normal DC universe. But in this issue, or in this specific story and universe, they are all kind of ragtag a bunch of people from the circus, including King Shark and Ragdoll, Dead Man. Dr. Fate, and then the Graysons. King Shark ends up getting, as we assume, he's murdered because his jaw gets split off by an Amazon. Out of nowhere, as they're all running away, trying to protect Dr. Fate, Count Vertigo shows up and kind of throws them all off. While that's occurring, one of the Amazons throws a uh, spear through Nelson's chest and Dr. Fate is now dead. So they take the helmet, and also at the same point, Dick's dad also gets the stake partially into his chest as well. Count Vertigo takes the helmet off of Nelson, and then they all go into the sewer system in hiding. They start talking about what they're doing. Count Vertigo says he works for the Resistance, and he's been hearing rumors about how Cyborg, the American Patriot, is putting together a super team to uh, take out the Atlanteans, and the Amazons. While Dick is sleeping, his father tells Deadman that despite the fact that Boston Brand has been okay being alone, he has to promise not to leave Dick because Dick needs people because that's the only way he flourishes. Back above ground, the Amazons are very slowly intimidating and interrogating the people looking for the, the Dr. Fate helmet, and in turn, they mention that the helmet is practically indestructible, so that the only way that they're going to find it if it's hidden is by burning everything down. So then we are introduced to Starfire, who is commanded to burn it all to the ground. 
that is the end of that issue. Flashpoint, Dead Man and the Flying Graysons, number two. I thought this was an enjoyable issue. I think the idea of having the not-so-well-known superheroes from the normal DC universe kind of grouped together as part of Haley Circus is kind of cool. Seeing Ragdoll and King Shark, it makes sense because where else would these people go if there was if they weren't heroes or villains in the DC universe? They'd probably be most likely be part of a circus, so it makes sense. In some regards, it's interesting to see the death of Dick's parents very different but at the same time, we can we would assume that his frustration is going to be taken out on the Amazons who have killed his parents. And in turn, he's going to have some kind of team up with Deadman to take out the Amazons or at least be part of the resistance that helps take out the Amazons in the next issue. I'm not real sure how this is going to wrap up. I'm having a hard time figuring out exactly how all of these different miniseries for Flashpoint actually fit into the timeline of what's going on with Flashpoint. With the other Flashpoint mini that we're covering on the, the comic cast with Batman Night of Vengeance, it's a good series, great series, but it's hard to match up exactly what's going on with the actual Flashpoint main series. And that's a little bit difficult to understand but that doesn't actually have to do with the Batman universe, so I'll try to stick to this. The art was enjoyable. I think Fabrizio's art is a very unique style, and it works well when dealing with the circus aspect. Specifically because, well, one, the covers are, are freaking amazing. Whoever's idea it was to kind of do the covers like they were a poster for the circus, that was genius. But the art inside, it works well because of the mashup of the different characters. There's not a specific type. I'm interested to see the the effect that Starfire is going to have, but I think it was kind of, hey, let's throw another character in there because, because we can. So with that, I'm going to give this issue three and a half out of five batterings. I'm going to give it a two out of five batterings, the... Well, the art was okay. The story, you know, doesn't really interest me, this alternate, because partially because, and I guess this might be my error, but I'm not reading Flashpoint, so. And with, you know, the current questions over continuity and what's going to be in continuing September and not, like, it's really, I really don't feel like reading alternate stories. Like, I guess they have to tie in the Flashpoint and show, like, what what's in the Flashpoint reality, but, like, it feels like it's a poor time to, like, give the reader another alternate reality and alternate stuff and... Just the concept of this miniseries and the story within it have really no interest for me, so I'm giving it two and a half out of five batterings. Yeah, I'll give it the same grade. I think the art's pretty good. I actually like the idea of the series, that it's showing the ripple effects of the timeline being changed. We know what happened to Bruce Wayne, what happened to Dick Grayson, he had to grow up and everything. This kind of felt like a little bit of shock to me. There was a lot of like really weird fight scenes, like with uh, King Shark and Deadman, or not Deadman, but uh, Dr. Fakin stabbed and everything, and... It didn't feel as though the plot necessitated it. It felt like there was a lot of like kind of like beats going on. It felt kind of like phoning in, going through the numbers, and I wasn't particularly invested in it. But it's a good idea. It's a good concept. I just think the execution was a little poor. So two and a half out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, Melinda gave it four and a half out of five batterings. That is going to give the issue. Three out of five batterings. Let's move into our next issue: Superman, Batman. Number 
the great hall of the Justice League, there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes, created from the cosmic legends of the universe, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, Aquaman, Junior Super Friends, Wendy, Marvin, and Wonder Dog. Their mission, to fight injustice, to right that which is wrong, and to serve all mankind. All right, well, we pick up where we left off last issue, where a dead reporter who was doing a story for the Gotham Gazette um, apparently knew Batman's secret identity before he died. So this is putting a lot of suspicion on Batman, and as you remember last issue, Batman and Superman weren't quite getting along on this because, you know, hey, it's a Superman-Batman book they got to argue. So they're each conducting their own investigation, doing it separately. And over the course of this, Batman talking to the guys that are in chief, realizes that this guy's a heavy drinker and wonders who else knew, you know, that this guy knew Batman's secret identity and who had the motive to silence him. So Batman finds out what bar he frequents, shows up at and sees what kind of information. Uh, this is really interesting. Apparently there's like a, it's either really interesting or really stupid. I'm kind of, you know, oscillating. <laughs> it's, there's like a suggestion box, like anyone that has information about how to kill Batman, it's like, you like, drop things in there, and I don't know how something like that would be able to exist, but for the person of the story, it's kind of cool. Meanwhile, you know, Clark Kent, as, you know, on his guise as a uh, guys, that's his occupation, is, you know, asking questions for then very, very Dark Knight-esque Lucius and especially uh... the way and the way he acts at the end, and Batman, you know, Batman gets a little bit of a clue based on a some teeth that he finds in the suggestion box who might be behind this and we cut to Clark Kent on a computer working on the story with the Joker right behind him who has you know overpassed Clark's super hearing in all other senses and is about to hit him with a big mallet saying stop the presses <laughs> to be concluded alright Superman Batman number 86 this story is probably one of the few stories that I think these odd off-series are kind of going out on a high note. It'll be interesting to see how it actually plays out with Superman Batman number 87 next month or this month in August, but the story moves along kind of at a slower pace than we than we were moving in the last issue. Last issue, not only did we have different events that were important take place, but also we had the reveal the whole reason why the reporter was killed was because of that little piece of the Wayne Technologies built into the grapple gun that that serial number and the problem is that the specific of the the specifics of this issue was basically kind of an exchange between Lucius Fox and Clark Kent and the editor at the Gotham Gazette and Batman about well which one's better would we rather have superheroes and have a more protected world, or would we rather have no superheroes and let the police take care of it and let them deal with it? It's kind of like, let's look at the both sides of the mirror. Do we want to look at the bad, or do we want to look at the good, or how do you actually perceive it? And it was a lot more, it was dealing with a lot more philosophy than most 
Superman Batman stories. Let me just say that. I thought the art was okay. Nothing special in my opinion, but I'm interested to see how it is actually going to play out because, well, two things aren't going to happen. One, there's no way the Joker's actually going to hit Clark Kent with that mallet because, like Josh said, how can he not know that Joker's right behind him? Two, I have this odd suspicion that the ending of the story is going to be the Joker was working hand-in-hand with the editor from the Gotham Gazette because the Joker didn't want Batman to be exposed because then the Batman would disappear and the Joker would feel no need to be around. And that's what I'm seeing happening. I hope it's not that and it's something better because otherwise it'd be very predictable and I don't like predictability. And the other reason that he can't is if the Joker hits Clark Kent with the mallet, the mallet's going to shatter, and then Joker knows the knows that Clark Kent has the secret. So that's not going to happen either. Also, another interesting take, this actually comes from Dark Knight Dave on the website. He did a review for 85 and 86 together, and the one thing that he made sure that he pointed out in his review was that this is actually taking place in the past, during the earlier years of Batman and Superman's career, it's not taking place in the present time. And he mentioned that this could be kind of like an insight of what we can expect from Justice League and Superman come September because they're also taking place in the past. So that's also an interesting take on, I wonder if this story was greenlit before or after the whole relaunch thing was planned and how long the story was written before news of the relaunch was actually known or before it was actually talked about. So that's one thing that kind of interests me. So with this issue, I'm going to give it three and a half out of five batterings. The story, it feels a bit padded, but, you know, it wasn't as bad as the last issue where we had Batman and Superman arguing and accusing each other. Even though it's early in their career, it was just like stupid accusations that weren't needed. So I like seeing Superman, you know, Investigative reporting, because that's one forgotten. You know, like people talk about Batman being a detective, but Superman is a reporter, so he's somewhat of a detective too. I don't know how I feel about this like suggestion box for how to kill Batman, because hey, wouldn't somebody like just be able to like you know like Killer Croc just rip it from the ground and like open it up? Like how many times has that thing had to be replaced? I don't know. Like part of it's like kind of a cool and interesting idea. Part of it stretches credibility. Is Superman faking, not hearing the Joker? It's like, how does he like not see the Joker behind it? And once again, the big mallet, which is either going to break or something. And it's it's a lot of criticism for a cliffhanger that hasn't been resolved yet. But, you know, a cliffhanger that they threw out to us all the same. They're talking about the Gotham Gazette, like, being, you know, possibly, like, if this story wasn't, like published then you know the guy might be laid off and like the whole paper might like you know go under and i kind of like the reality of like you know the newspaper not doing so well because in the dc universe and in the marvel universe too papers are in trouble when it's convenient for them but fact of the matter is nobody reads newspapers anymore i mean do you do you read a newspaper my wife does my dad does i don't yeah my dad does too i i get all my news online yeah me too the only person reading the newspaper are our parents and uh, Mrs. Batman Universe, so <laughs> it, it, papers are going under. Otherwise, it's it, the, the story still feels bland to me, though, even with the inclusion of the Joker at the end. And 
So I'm going to give it two out of five out of rings. I was actually very impressed with this issue and how it turned out. This could have gone as cliched and typical as the last issue kind of was, in my opinion. But it, it sort of morphed into something more. And I think that, like, because they're using the, the format that this is early in Batman and Superman's relationship and careers, the fact that they're in this conspiracy to frame up Batman, it has them to kind of, like, stop and think about, like, how they approach things and have the characters comment on them. That's kind of like my, up my alley in terms of comic book writing. I, I really like that. I, and I thought the art was very good, too. There was a lot of, like, a lot of times in modern comic books, you get the sense that they are padded because there are these big, humongous panels that sort of, like, you know, show the same scene over and over again and tick up, tick up screen. But to me, it just felt like more like old school comics where, you know, there was enough dialogue and pictures to, like, sort of balance it out and tell a story that needed to be told. And I actually didn't think, think it was too bad. I, th- I thought that it was well-paced, personally. Now, with Cliffhanger, I don't really care whether Joker's trying to get the drop on him or not. That's not really a question to me. You know, it's a question of what's going to happen next, but it's not a question of is Superman going to get him or is Superman going to get him, because he's going to get him. I didn't care because I enjoyed this issue a lot. And I was really surprised I did, and I'm happy that I did. So I'm going to get four out of five batterings. It's an over on the website, like I said. Uh, Dark Knight Dave reviewed the issues, and he gave it four out of five batterings. So that is going to give the issue four out of five batterings. Let's move into our next book, Batman the Dark Knight number four. I thought my jokes were bad. Give me one reason why I shouldn't have my boy here pull your head off. How about a magic trick? Dark Knight number four, written by David Fitch, illustrated by Jason Faybook. We begin with at Devil's Square, where the young girl, who stole the Batmobile in the first issue, returns home. She returns to find her father being hassled by thugs, demanding that he gives them some money that he owes them, and says that you have one week or we'll kill you and your family. The girl goes to her, uh, the basement in her house, and we see several plans for the Batmobile. So this girl's obviously super smart. She looks for something in her backpack, but can't find it and assumes that she left it in the Batmobile. We then go back to the sewers of Gotham City, where Etrigan is looking for the Ragman monster, and the two start duking it out. Back in the streets of Gotham, we see Batman and Don Golden driving through, and Don Golden all of a sudden starts to tell her backstory about how she was a little girl who her father used and his strange cult rituals, which we aren't very given too many specifics about. And when, on his deathbed, he tried to sacrifice her with a strange amulet. That's literally all, all we got. We go to Gotham City Police Headquarters, where Commissioner Gordon is heading to his office, and he, and he finds Lieutenant Forbes sitting there. Forbes really cockily tells him that he's under investigation for hustling several hypodermic needles of venom. He and Batman are both in on this uh, little illegal drug trade. Don Golden begs Batman to protect her when Batman wants to turn her into the police. And we cut back to the sewers where Etrigan and the Ragman monster battle before Etrigan is set upon by this devil-horned red woman who he calls Blaze. She offers to have him return to his rightful throne as a certain king in hell. And he says, I am yours, Dark Lady. And they join forces. Our issue ends with Batman on top of Don Golden's father's penthouse. And she's telling him how she was kidnapped and says that she can't be taken by her father again. And while Batman says that they will face this together once and for all, we see several gargoyle monsters crawling all around the penthouse. Next, the final battle. Batman the Dark Knight, 
Number four. Let me premise my review with <laughs> I'm really, really not liking this. And it's going to come across in my review, but I just want to say I know that there's people out there who are enjoying this. Please, if you're enjoying this, please email me at podcast.thebbinguniverse.net and tell me why you're enjoying this. Because I'm being completely serious when I say I cannot understand why this book, when it comes out, is actually in the top 10 comics for the month. Now, obviously, we don't have July stats, but the last issue, number two, was in the top 10 when the book came out. I think it was in March or February or March when that issue came out. But I can't figure it out. And the fact that I can't figure it out, I had a discussion with uh, somebody I work with and asked them what they thought. And they said that it has to do with the actual The Dark Knight in in the title, and that's what actually sells That better not be it. He said, because he doesn't read... He reads a lot of various different comics, and he said that what he's seen by going to the comic shop is that that sells because they put it out front, and it has that name on it, so people associate that with the films. Now, to tell you the truth, if that's what they're going for, they're getting some of that because there's a lot of different elements from the film as well as the TV show. Point in case, We know that the Narrows exist in this series because they've appeared. We also know that there's a wide variety of other references to Batman and things. But specifically, there's, it, it, to me, and I, I started to deduce this, and I'm almost tempted to write an article about all of these story elements that I, I'm seeing specifically pulled out of media interpretations of Batman and then mashed together to create this series because that's what I'm really seeing. I'm going to pick one, for instance, because it really came to light, and I really thought about it as soon as I saw it. The girl who was trying to steal the Batmobile's father actually designed the Batmobiles. That's what we assume, based on the fact that he has all these blueprints and drawings of the Batmobile inside of his basement. His daughter knows about it, so that means that not only does the person know who Batman is, or knows that Wayne Industries is at least building the Batmobile for Batman... But his daughter also knows. That's a stupid idea in the first place. I don't know why. But it seemed way too familiar for some reason. I really had to figure this out. So I started doing a little bit of research, and I found out that Batman the Animated Series, episode number 55, entitled The Mechanic, had to do with the Batmobile being destroyed, and Batman's personal mechanic, whose name was Earl Cooper, designing a Batmobile for Batman. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, ep- same episode actually plays into something that happens during Batman Returns because the Penguin ends up convincing that Earl Cooper character in the in the animated series to kind of let him tweak with it. And then in turn, Penguin has control over the Batmobile. I'm sorry, obviously that was already played out in Batman Returns, but it, it blows my mind that not only are we doing something that could possibly be linked back to Batman Returns, but also linked to the animated series as well, because that's what this draws more towards, is the animated series and not so much Batman Returns. I'm tired of reading something that, to me, is just fan fiction. I'm sorry, I'm a Batman fan, but I'm not even a professional comic book writer, and I'm sure I could write a better story than what's being told in Batman The Dark Knight. This is not good stuff. Throwing every character you can into a story does not make it a good story. Tony Daniel is a perfect example of that. And not to say that Tony Daniel can't do a good job. He can, depending on what he's telling. But 
David Finch is not doing a good job at all. And I'm sorry for those of you who think he is. His art is above par, I'll give him that. But his story writing is crap. I'm glad to know that not only for issue 5, but also for the relaunch of Batman Dark Knight, which was not needed whatsoever, that they also brought on a co-writer to help him with the series because they really need to do some plot layout because this is not good writing. The best example is, in the last issue, Dawn Golden is said to be in shock. Then we see in this issue, she's riding in the Batmobile. We would assume she's still in shock because this is a classic scene from Batman Begins. Batman's got the girl in the car with him. He's driving her to safety. That's the whole thing. That's the same thing that happened in Batman Begins, but the difference was... Batman 89, yeah. Yeah, and Batman 89 as well. But Batman Begins, it was a perfect example of what he should have followed instead of doing what he did in this issue. The girl in the car is freaked out. She doesn't know what's going on. She's never met Batman. And that's what we assume has happened with Dawn Golden. There's no mention of Dawn Golden knowing who Batman is. She's never talked to Batman. She doesn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman, as far as we know. But the reality is she's very open just to, to let loose and tell Batman her life story. Why? That's completely out of character for anybody who was just basically tortured to the point that she almost died and was out of breath and had heat lamps on her and was dehydrated. It's totally out of character. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on here, and it's basically almost positive that this series is a direct correlation with the fact that DC wanted David Finch, and this was part of his contract, was that he could write a Batman series. And... The only reason they're being able to bring in the co-writer is the fact that he fell so far behind, and that's their excuse for bringing in the co-writer. But I really hope that the co-writer comes in and actually helps this story, or fixes the story, and I don't even know if it can be fixed. The whole Ragman and Etrigan thing seems completely useless. I can't see it being wrapped up in issue 5 because that aspect of the story has been told so little then we've got the whole, you know, Penguin side story going on now that he's no longer involved with Dawn Golden kidnapping. And then the whole Batmobile thing going on at the same time. I'm sorry, there's just too much going on in too few of pages for a comic. Scale it down, cut some of the crap out because there's plenty to cut out. Zero out of five batterings. I don't know how I'm going to follow that. Well, okay. It's, you know, Dustin mentioned, you know, this has been done in the movie. And I go back to, you know, Batman 89. Vicky Vale, you know, she she wasn't tortured or anything like that. I mean, she just ate an art museum with the Joker. But man, you know, was she in shock when she was in that Batmobile, you know? Like, that's a good example of how it probably would have gone in real life if a woman who has never encountered Batman before is all of a sudden kidnapped, rescued. She's in this car. She doesn't know where they're going. And, oh, oh, by the way, just to add some more stuff for a little more screwed up in the head than Vicky Vale, this girl was in cult rituals. Her father tried to sacrifice her on her deathbed. She might have a thing against, you know, going in the cars with people who dress up like bats, but, you know, hey, whatever. This is David Finchland. You know, things are different there. She's chatting with Batman casually there at her apartment, and, like, she's putting on, like, a bathrobe. Like, did, like, Batman stand on the balcony and wait for her to take a shower or, like, get dressed or something? It's just... It's way too casual for this era of Batman. Like, if this was Adam West Batman or even 1970s Batman, I could see this happening. Val Kilmer Batman. <sighs> we said we would never speak of this again. <laughs> it's... 
And again, Ragman and stuff like that just felt like it was there for no reason. And Don Golden, it's I don't know this. this and then, like, the end, the demon scaling the wall, about to, like, storm her apartment. It's a good thing Batman waited there while she took a shower. You know? Maybe they'll help themselves to a <laughs> and, you know, like, watch TV together. Or <laughs> I'm with Dustin, man. I'm a, look, look, pile on the train. Zero out of five batterings. <laughs> uh, there's about to be a hat trick. Let's go through this thing for a little bit. Just in pure riding stance. You guys mentioned that... Borrow elements from the animated series, the borrow elements from Batman Begins, Batman 89, and The Dark Knight. We have a daughter coming home to her father being threatened by goons to give him money at a certain period of time or they'll kill him. Now, granted, that's not wholly original, but at the same time, the, the first thing that popped in my head was Mass of the Phantasm. So, that's number one. Number two, we have Dawn Golden, who was in like a catatonic level of shock last issue in the Batmobile, who, like, as I said, to our knowledge, has never interacted with Batman before, doesn't even know who he is. If she knew who he was, Batman would logically say, Don, it's me, Bruce, but he doesn't, so she doesn't know who he is. So, here is the dialogue from the top. Where are we going? Just try to relax, Don. You've been through a lot, but you're safe now. No, you don't understand. I'm not safe, and I can never be safe. He'll find me. I'll deal with Penguin. You don't need to worry. No! Not Penguin. I've been running much longer than that. Since I was a little girl, the only place I ever felt really safe was in my head. And then she goes to proceeds to go on this flashback about her father and the cults and everything, as though this is, like, common knowledge. We just read DC Retroactive Batman in the 70s, and Lynn Wine obviously was writing to a very specific era of Batman where we said it was simple because there wasn't very... It wasn't too explicit in its description, but it served well for what it was. That is, like, ten times better than this. Because all of a sudden, why does Don Golden feel the need to tell Batman about her dead father, who has nothing to do with the, with the, with the situation at hand right now? How does Batman even know who this guy is? He's like, Don, your father was a crazy evil man, but he's dead now. She says, I thought so too, but he's not. Like, what are you two talking about? Third point, why is Gordon, like, so crazy in this series? He's always, like, screaming at this guy, grabbing him by the, by the collar and, like, like, threatening to beat him up. And people are always holding him back as though he were... Anna from the animated series, like this is like the second or third time he's done that <laughs> in the uh, in this in this uh, comic. Stop showing Gordon as this as a psychopath. It doesn't make him tough. It makes him look like an idiot. And then this whole thing with Etrigan and Ragman, with like a, a plot point where this this character who looks like Purgatory from the Bad Girl Dark Age says, "Oh, you will be a king of hell." Okay. And what happened to Penguin? What happened to the green guy? And then all of a sudden we have these like gargoyles crawling over the place, just as Batman says, we'll fight together once and for all. And then, in issue 5, the final battle, there's not been a single battle besides Batman killing Croc in, like, issue 1 or 2. This is garbage! This is... No, 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 no. It's worse than garbage. There's a line where that Gordon says that is so apropos. I gotta get to it. It says, what kind of amateur hour garbage is this? My thoughts exactly. Zero out of five batterings. Alright, and nobody reviewed it on the website. Surprise, surprise. And very pleased because one thing I didn't say was this was the first comic that I've read in a very long time that when I finished it, I was pissed off. <laughs> this Batman The Dark Knight number four, zero out of five batterings, which to this day has never actually been done. We've always had at least a half a battering on some issues. This is the first issue to actually get 
triple goose eggs across the board. So that's going to move into our next review, which is Detective Comics number 880. Now, hopefully you can kind of uh, clear your mind from all that negative talk because we're about to get into something very, very worthwhile. That the Riddler is better than you. Detective Comics number 880, written by Scott Snyder, art by Jacques. The issue starts off with Commissioner Gordon peeling across Gotham City. He's on the phone with Barbara Sr., who's in town at a hotel, and Gordon basically tells her, you need to lock the doors, don't let anybody in. Unfortunately, there's someone knocking, and she thinks it's the police coming to protect her, and as it turns out, it's not. Gordon gets there and finds her in the bathtub, stripped naked, with a Joker smile on her face, bleeding everywhere. We then cut to a facility where... Gordon is accompanied by Barbara Jr. and Dick Grayson, and they say that they got Barbara Sr. just in time as the Venom didn't, isn't going to have lasting effects. But nonetheless, at this point, Dick doesn't know what to say to Gordon. It's just it's time to try to figure out what to do. We then cut to Arkham Asylum, where we find out that Gordon is meeting up with Batman, and talking about how the Joker got out, found out that the Joker Venom itself is a new breed, but it's actually very old. It's one of the earlier versions that he used, but he actually secreted it through his skin. We then cut to Batman with Harvey Bullock, and they're trying to track down where the Joker actually went from Arkham Asylum. And surprise, surprise, up at Cord Tower, Barbara has a uh, person at their at her front door, and she turns and she suspects it's the Joker, as we all do. And as we continue, Batman jumps into the sewer and starts on Joker's tra trail, and he finds a catechism underneath Gotham City with a bunch of dead bodies. It looks like there was a cult at one point there, but Joker's actually there, and Joker is quite content with admitting that he had nothing to do with touching Barbara Gordon Sr., and if he did, then uh, he definitely admit it. Um, he also would, he also tells Batman that it's not his Batman. He wants his Batman back in Gotham, and the Batman that uh, is, is him, he knows used to be one of the Robins. He's positive. We then cut to Gordon, who's talking to Barbara Senior, and she's telling him that he was so crazy, he was so crazy. Barbara is convinced that the person outside, she's figured it out. Joker's admitting to Batman that it wasn't him, it wasn't him. We are left with the last page of Detective Comics with the quote, Hi there, sis. Aren't you happy to see me? With James Gordon standing over Barbara and an ah <laughs> from the outside of Cord Tower to be continued. Detective Comics number 880. Flippin' amazing. I've got to say, this was probably the best interpretation of the Joker that I've seen for quite some time. The Joker is meant to be crazy. He's not meant to be this, like, genius that can plot out all these crazy things. No, he's this homicidal, crazy person who would, for the most part, spit out random crap just because he's crazy. This was great. I absolutely love Snyder's interpretation of the Joker. Probably the best interpretation of the Joker that I've read in years. <laughs> On top of that... The story involving and finding out that it wasn't actually Joker who cut up Barbara Senior's face and it was actually James is quite interesting because 
that shows that obviously he's going after his family, which we see at the end with him going after Barbara. But it's interesting to see how exactly this is all going to play out. Is James Gordon Jr. actually going to end up somehow getting killed? Is he going to end up in Arkham Asylum along with all the other crazies? What exactly is going to happen? I gotta say, I'm looking more forward towards 881 of Detective Comics and the conclusion of this story by Scott Snyder than anything else that has been coming out all year long. Gates of Gotham is up there as far as how that's going to play out. But again, that's something that Snyder was involved in. I'm also really interested in Flashpoint, Batman Night of Vengeance and how that wraps up, as well as Flashpoint and some of the relaunch stuff. But this is the single issue that, I've been look- that I'm looking forward to the most because it's going to wrap up this huge storyline. And just based on the cover, it seems as if it could be bringing back characters from the very beginning of Scott Snyder's story with the auctioneer as well. I gotta say, amazing, the art was great, Jock's interpretation of the Joker, whether that was determined by Scott Snyder or Jock himself, whoever it was, props to them, amazing job, five out of five batterings. This is everything that a Batman book needs to be, this is everything that we should have gotten in 2009 with the new direction instead of Tony Daniel, this is... This is awesome, and if the new DC has anything like this, and I know Scott Snyder's going to be doing it, but I mean, like, if we can get this kind of quality on other books for the new DC, then I will eat every single word that I've ever said about this uh, upcoming reboot. This was... I did know that, okay, it's obviously not Joker that did this to Barbara Sr. It's got to be James, and but it's still cool, because they've been building up this James thing, and, like... They haven't made it too obvious that he's the mustache-trolling villain. Like, they've done it in a creepy way. And the fight between Batman and the Joker was good. It's, it's, this is all something nice, and I want to see where it's going. And, and they're using members of the Batman's cast, you know, and, like, using them in an interesting way. They're not just their set pieces. Having Barbara Sr., who's, like, rarely ever seen, and half the writers weren't sure if she was alive or dead at one point having her come back she's not back for no reason like she's back and it serves an emotional purpose like i love that scene where jim finds her that was awesome and one side note though i think i know how barbara's going to be back girl again you know how they thought that it was joker showing up to shoot her again what if james jr shoots her oh and the bullet realigns her spine (laughs) i can feel my legs and then he's like that's all i ever wanted to do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> this was all just a plan to get you the walk again, sis. Now we can be a family, don't you see? Waka, waka, waka. No, this is good. This is Batman comic. This is... I have been disenchanted with, like, some of the Batman books as of late, you know, because for every book like this, you know, we get two or three Gotham City Sirens or Superman Batmans, but, like, this is the type of book that makes you remember why you read Batman. Five out of five batterings, because I can't give it ten, because Dustin won't let me. I remember when I first read this, I was at my shop, and it was this, Gates of Gotham 3, and a non-DC book. Spider-Man. And uh, I actually enjoyed all of them, but like this was like, I think I read this last. And I was close to shaking after I read this comic, because one of the best aspects I think you can do as, as people are writing Batman is to make it as close to a horror comic as you can because just about the nature of the characters they're so psychological and so vicious in what they do that carry off this like horror vibe in a comic book which i think is a very hard thing to do it just shows you how excellent scott snyder really is as a writer 
it goes beyond getting the characters right. It goes beyond having cool action sequences. It goes beyond great art. Just like the atmosphere of the book. Just like the scene with Barbara Sr. in the hospital. And then like Barbara, our Barb, Babs Gordon, the redheaded one. <laughs> trying to hold her father's hand. And he just shakes it away because Jim Gordon is the main character in this entire story. It just shows you how, how much respect he has for all these characters. How well he knows them. What a great idea of his, uh, in his head he has for this this whole James Gordon Jr. thing. And again, yeah, it wasn't a huge twist, at least to me, that James Gordon Jr. was the one who attacked his mother. But at the same time, how insane you have to be to do that to your own mother? Like, to get, like, the freaking Joker toxin and just have it in that, that crazy way. Like, I, I was so shocked when I, when I found out that this would happen to her. And I can't remember being that shocked before in a long, long time. I will say, though... The one thing that I didn't care for, I disagree with Justin, I really didn't care how the Joker was done in this story. I'm not saying he was done bad at all. I'm not saying this is, not, this is an interpretation that I don't want to see again. But it's not one that I think is, is all that iconic. Because I think the Joker, as insane as he is, and he is definitely insane, I think that the Joker still is somebody who has his faculties all together. And in this one, he kind of came off as somebody who almost wasn't in control of what he was doing. Not that he wasn't, but it kind of veered close to that, and it was a little too arch, in my opinion. That being said, I really enjoyed the scene with him and Batman, Dick Grayson. I love that he just straight up said, yeah, I know, you're not Batman. Where's my Batman? Tell him for me. Tell him right now. I like that. I really like that. And the splash page near the end, where it all comes together. (laughs) Oh, man. And that last page with, like, those glowing glasses eyes. I'm with Dustin. I cannot wait for 881. 40-page finish. Five out of five batterings. All right, and over on the website, Dane also gave it five out of five batterings. That is going to give one of the few books we've ever had on the comic cast a five out of five batterings across the board. Tech Comics, number 880, five out of five batterings. Moving on to our last issue, Gotham City Sirens, number 25. Whoops. Oh, big whoops. Any ideas? Just one. Hit it. The other end of the spectrum. Gotham City Sirens 25. Poison Ivy got punched out by Catwoman recently because Catwoman was pissed at her for something that happened at the beginning of the Gotham City Sirens series. So she's an Arkham, you know, but she has control of the plants and the plants are like all over the building and like can tell her everything that everyone does. I don't like it when Poison Ivy's that powerful, but I digress. The henchman of the Penguin informs her that there is a hit on Catwoman that's coming up and, you know, if Poison Ivy wants to be involved, you know, there will be a breakout, but... Is all, this is something that's already in the works. Does Poison Ivy want in because she knows that she has problems with Catwoman? Poison Ivy definitely wants in because what's a Gotham City Sirens book without two of the sirens trying to kill each other? And we get more of that later this issue because during the breakout, Ivy decides that she has some unfinished business with Harley because the last issue, Harley was playing some mind games with her. So she goes to kill Harley in her cell as she's breaking out. But she sees that Harley has, like, Joker stuff all over her, and she compares her love for the Joker to an addiction that Harley's relapsed to. And she decides, you know what, I'm not going to kill Harley. But she says to Harley, you know, because of everything that Catwoman's done to us, you know, are you in? Or do you want to help me kill her? So they meet up with the Penguin, and they talk about what the plan is. They said, Selena's not stupid. You know, she'll see this coming. What plan? What will they see coming? Well, we don't find out, because we then cut to, instead of some, like, 
assassination attempt or some clever thing. They just meet Selena on a rooftop. How do they know that Selena's on that rooftop? How do they find her in Gotham City? What? Why are they being so direct? I don't know. But they come up to her and they're like, Selena, are you ready to die? And she's like, not if you're ready to die first. To be concluded. Thank goodness. Gotham City Sirens number 25. I guess the, the real thing is it's it hasn't been concluded. We still have one more issue, which is not the greatest thing in the world. This issue, the problem is I see the direction of this is at least they spaced it out where it's actually going to end in August compared to some of the other series such as Batman and Robin and Batman. Those series are not ending, you know, flowing right into what's going on in September. It's This series is clearly going and flowing. I have to give them props for that because at least they figured out a way to space it out properly so that the series ended at the same time as everything else instead of ending earlier or having a bunch of crappy fill-in issues which probably would be the same quality as this issue. And the story itself, the sad part is it was just the issue ago that, that Poison Ivy was put in jail. And we don't even have, you know, any kind of break before the fact that she's breaking out and, the, and her and Harley are teaming up to go after Catwoman. And, and the problem that I have is that, well, one, it, we've seen this story before, Harley and Ivy against Selina. We've seen this a number of times before. It gets old every time. Nobody wins in this situation. None of these characters are actually going to die. It's it, this isn't going to happen. Just because the relaunch is happening doesn't mean they're going to kill a character in August and then miraculously a couple weeks later they're going to, you know, not be killed because they're going to use the relaunch as an excuse to bring the character back. Now, if they did, that would be a huge twist because nobody would see that coming. But I just I don't see that happening. In addition to that, it's not very interesting. We spent more of the issue having. Poison Ivy have these flashbacks about Harley and herself, and it's just, it's old. It To me, it seems like it's more filler than anything else, but that might be the reason of why they were able to make it last until August. The art, at least for, you know, for a book that's featuring an all-woman main cast, at least the art isn't going above and beyond to accentuate every aspect of the female anatomy. So props to Ginaldo for doing that. But this isn't really that great, and it's not interesting to me, so I'm going to give this 2 out of 5 battery. This book, see, Dustin's talking about how it's, you know, how it's good how they plan it to end exactly at this time. I feel like they've been padding it ever since, you know, the Talia storyline earlier this year. Really padding it and trying to get, like, extra stories out, you know, like, making stories that could be one part into three parts instead, just so that they can end it, you know, in time for the you know, reboot in September. It's, uh, again, it's, it, it seems like ever since that Talia storyline too, every single issue has been about, you know, some of the sirens trying to kill each other, which maybe that's a novel idea for a team book, you know, like a team that's always trying to like literally kill each other and not like arguing. I mean, they're trying to murder each other, but the only part that I really liked about this was like Ivy's shock when she saw all the Joker stuff all over Harley's cell and how she compared it to an addiction that she was relapsing to. I thought that was cool. 
not much else. I mean, you heard me explain it in, you know, the recap, you know, instead of, like, you know, trying to kill Catwoman, they just take the direct approach, find her in the middle of a rooftop, which is a trope that I really, really, really hate in comics, where, like, you know, these people are, like, prowling the rooftops, you know, in a big city, but somehow they could find each other, like, all the time, even people that, like, okay, Batman's a master tracker, cool, but, like, Poison Ivy, what, did the trees tell her where Catwoman is? And that's another thing. <laughs> God, that's another thing. That I, remember when Poison Ivy was just a chick that can, like, you know, control some plants? Like, now she has, like, she's, like, more powerful than Clark Kent at this point. Like, she can, like, know everything that's going on in Arkham Asylum because there's trees within the walls. Give me a break, you know? She would have killed Batman years ago. Heck, she would have, like, been, like, it's already been done, Penguin. I said, you know, there's a tree inside this building. It just impaled Catwoman through the chest right now. And now it's gonna impale you. I poison Ivy will rule the world. Like God, zero out of five. But no, one out of five battle rank. One out of five. Let's not get carried away. But gosh, uh, I actually thought that this issue wasn't nearly as good as the last issue, which I surprisingly loved. This issue was sort of a disappointment, but it was sort of half and half for me. I like that we got the perspective of poison Ivy right after we got several issues of the perspective of uh, Harley Quinn. I just thought that there was a nice change up. Not saying it was like wholly original or nice or or new or anything, but I just like that. And I my favorite part was when she confronted Harley because it really made Harley out to be sick minded and even somebody who is legitimately as crazy as poison ivy could see that she really needed help. And I like the thought process of I could kill her, but I could, you know, free her. Or I could kill her, but we could fight Catwoman together. But I could kill her, but you know, she's my friend. But I, could, I like the fact that she was really, really thinking it over. <laughs> I don't think the art was very good. It's it's the same artist as it always has been, but like there was that one panel where Poison Ivy and, Cap- and Harley Quinn are like, running out of Arkham Asylum, and Poison Ivy looks like she's about to bowl over because she's completely slanted and diagonal. And that's the, kind of the problem with the, all, all, all the art. I appreciate the fact that they're not very gratuitous with the female anatomy when they really could be, but at the same time, there's not much left to, to speak about it. And I agree that there's some contrivances like, you know, meeting Catwoman on a rooftop. And then instead of getting the drop on her and like just like Carly jumping out of nowhere and slamming her with a hammer, they meet Mortal Kombat style and just walk around. That's a little too contrived. But I didn't... I thought the sister was alright. So I'll, I'll give it three out of five batterings. Alright, so that is going to give Gotham City Sirens a total of two out of five batterings. Let's throw it over to Nick with Bat Books for Beginners. Hello there, and welcome to another edition of Bat Books for Beginners. My name is Nick, and today I'm looking at Robin, Cry of the Huntress. Now, this is the third miniseries featuring Robin that I've reviewed. The last two were A Hero Reborn and The Joker is Wild. And this is the third and final one, and it's written by the same team, Chuck Dixon and Tom Lyle, doing the art, and it was released in 1992. So, can the team keep up their good form with these Robin miniseries featuring Tim Drake? Can they keep it up for one more time? Let's find out. (laughs) 
So Robin is struggling with his dad because he spends too much time with Bruce Wayne. He's also struggling with Batman since he's been told not to go out as Robin for a few days as Batman's concerned about something. But he does anyway of course in typical Robin fashion and he encounters the KG Beast whilst doing so and he unfortunately gets into conflict with him, he's struggling, but he does manage to escape with the help of the mysterious Huntress, who he then soon begins to work with. He quickly figures out that she is Helena Bertinelli. School is also not going well for Tim Drake as his counsellor is questioning him about the bruises he's been getting. Obviously he can't tell her they're, they're from crime fighting, so she attributes it, attributes it to abuse by Mr Wayne. Eventually his dad gives up, trying to sort Tim out and decides to send Tim to a boarding school in Metropolis. Tim's struggling with everything going on in his personal life but as Robin he also manages to find himself in the middle of a plot by a bunch of crazy Russians to counterfeit the newly declared European currency, the Euro. So he decides to team up with Huntress once again. They try to stop this crime. Of course, when they arrive, there's a scuffle, they get captured, there's a... F and also, Sir Edmund and Lynx arrive in an ambush, trying to steal the new currency for themselves. These, of course, are characters we've seen in the previous Robin books. And they manage to escape with the new currency, killing the Russians as a result. But uh, we soon learn that Robin tampered with the cash, making it invalid. And all's well that ends well, everyone leaves safe, and Robin and Huntress now have a new crime-fighting relationship. And Tim manages to make up with his dad, who decides it's best to for them to stay together rather than go to Metropolis. Now I thought that this book gave Chuck, uh, Chuck Dixon the opportunity to write some decent uh, dialogue between Robin and Huntress. It's witty, it's entertaining, and it feels quite natural. And I liked the two of them together. Different sort of dynamic, but I liked it. Much more talkative than with Batman, for instance. Snappy, flowed nicely, and was some of the best parts of this story. The main villain, the KG Beast, unfortunately, similarly to when he was used in the past, uh, Ten Nights of the Beast, he was a pretty basic bad guy, feels similar to any sort of henchman, a bit of a stereotype, and to make matters worse, he spoke some of the worst sort of broken English you can imagine. It was interesting that the KG Beast remembered Robin, but uh, it was Jason in fact, not Tim Drake. The last issue of the story ties everything up a little too neatly and quickly and very convenient for the writer. Especially, for instance, the characters Lynx and Sir Edmund, who I thought would have a much larger role in this miniseries after their initial appearances. They suddenly turn up at the end, and it's a bit forced, it felt. So it's interesting to see those characters return again. They really are Robin villains, not Batmans. Plus, we also get more from people like Ives and Ariana, who's introduced in this story. These guys become major side characters in the Robin story in the future. Um, another problem was Robin's reconciliation with his father, which takes about one page, where they each say how much they like each other and how big a mistake it was. After six issues of building this tension between them, it was all over in a few panels. That was disappointing. Again, the foiling of the counterfeiting and the Russians was conveniently solved. 
uh, with the simple I did something whilst the bad guys weren't looking mode which uh, Tim mentions towards the end a little too easy uh, I thought Tom Lyle's artwork as with the previous stories was very good it's not overly complicated but um, it com- conveys the movement and the action very well uh, I liked the aspect of Tim struggling with real life um, it's all part of being Robin we've seen it with the previous two and we know that he will learn in the future but he's struggling to balance his life and um, it's interesting to see that play out and I think Dixon understands why a teenager might be moody uh, especially Robin and, and makes the character relatable not what whiny as a teenager and um, I, I wonder if maybe Chuck Dixon wrote Jason Todd would things perhaps have been slightly different I don't know but um, you know this is this is an interesting Robin and it's good to, to learn all about him and of course we get to see more of Tim's detective skills that's always nice it's a strong character trait for him and I mean this miniseries did so well they managed they did three of them uh, thanks to successful sales I presume and that went on to, f- to form the fully monthly Robin series which came out soon after with Chuck Dixon uh, leading that as well so it must have done a very good job and I'm sure we'll visit that Robin monthly series in the future on BBFB so all in all pretty good job not brilliant this time round but um, the introduction of Huntress helped things a bit so it's three and a half out of five Batarangs Now, next time, I'm going to be looking at Batman Sword of Azrael, which depicts the origin of a new character, Jean-Paul Valley. Yes, I know there's a particular word you're thinking of when I say that name. Now, the descendants of holy warriors, Jean-Paul is forced into using his ancestral superpowers and abilities to become Azrael, the avenging angel of an ancient cult. But when the Order of St. Dumas targets Batman, Azrael begins to question his life and duty. After working alongside the Dark Knight to defeat the deadly demon that threatens the ancient cult, Azrael turns his back on the Order and leaves to train under the tutelage of Batman. Now that word you must be thinking of is Nightfall, and that is soon going to be upon us as we review the very first bits of build-up to that massive story. So prepare for the Batman comic event of the 90s, which will soon be here on BBFB, and we will soon get to see Bane and uh, what sort of effect he could have on Batman. So look forward to that massive comic story arc starting with Batman Sword of Azrael next time. So do please join me for that one. So I've been Nick, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you for the start of Nightfall next time. Thanks for saving my bacon, Robin. Hey, no problemo, Batman. Alright, so that was Batbooks for Beginners. I'm sure you're picking up the next issue for the next episode. Let's move into Batbooks Delays. So according to Joe, the Batbook Delays that we have right now is Batman Gates of Gotham number 5 was delayed one week from August 17th to the 24th. Now, this is also the same week as Batman Incorporated number 8 is the current issue date that it's coming out as well. The interesting thing is actually Batman Incorporated number 8 and number 10 are solicited on the same date. And that may be fixed by now as you're reading this as these bad book delays were posted on July 26th on the website. Make sure you're checking out the website every Tuesday afternoon, America time I guess I should say. 
so that you can see the latest delays and find out if a book coming out the following day is coming out. That book delays might actually cease to exist after the relaunch, but I imagine that only lasts a couple months before we'll have to resurrect it. So with that, I'm actually not going to have a discussion just because there's been a lot of stuff. We're still trying to figure out exactly how we're going to cover all the comics for August and then make sure that it lines up perfectly so that we can start the relaunch books fresh and not be mixing up old books with the new books and all that. So there was at least one more episode between now and then. No knowledge of when it's going to come out one way or the other. If it comes out in three weeks or two weeks, there's going to be a decent chunk of comics on that podcast, as well as probably some news as well. So with that, I'm going to leave it there, but I am also going to announce that right before the relaunch, we're actually going to be releasing a special, again, on the Batman Universe Specials feed, related to what we actually expect from the various series based on everything we've been told prior to the books coming out, and our predictions of what is to come. Now, we're specifically releasing this prior to the books coming out, so that way we can actually give predictions that are interesting and worthwhile to listen to, but also, in addition to that, kind of see how in tune we are with the future direction of the Batman books. So look forward to that. That'll be coming out the end of August, right before the Friday, right before Justice League number one hits stores. So check that out. In addition to that, you can check out the website for all the daily news and all of the other podcasts that we have on the website as well. You can join the forums. Be sure if you join the forums to email us and let us know that you've joined the forums so we can make sure to activate your account. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, you can email us at podcast at thebatmanuniverse.net with any questions, comments, or concerns about this podcast or any of our other podcasts or anything in general related to getting in touch with us. We'll be sure to email you back and take your your suggestions for in consideration. So with that, that's everything for this episode. This is Dustin. You got Josh. And this is Donovan. And you've been listening to the Batman Universe Comic Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. See you next issue. Side. No, but I'm in my car. Oh, okay. And like, <laughs> there's the, 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 there's someone showing off how big his <laughs> is. Hey, is it you? Out. You got a little car. Yeah. That that'll end up in the next blooper show. Because you can't say in the regular blooper show. I mean, in the regular uh, blooper section. Unless it's, unless it ends with Grayson. What? Oh my god. I'm not I'm looking at these logos for the first time. I shouldn't I shouldn't say, but Mmm. Yeah, mine's still loading. I don't know. I
Oh my god, is this guy circling the parking lot? He's coming for you. It's Dan DiDio. <laughs> these... If we're talking about these logos... It's weird to criticize logos, but... My feelings on it. Josh was eaten by a dog. Yes. He was eaten by my dog half across the country. Oh my god, Don, you were not kidding. Turns out they're looking to build a... Uh... Sorry about that. Dude, there's like a raid. <laughs> Dude, a bunch of cops just like showed up. And like this guy like ran into the restaurants, like, you know, on his cell phone, like looking to see who was chasing him. And like four cops just like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you gotta you gotta love these recordings. <sighs> this was supposed to be a quick one. <laughs> This is, these are my options when I'm at my, my girlfriend's Wi-Fi situation has gone from, like, I used to be able to, like, I recorded in her apartment, like, many times, and then, like, the Wi-Fi got worse, and I can only, like, do it on her patio, and now even her patio's bad, so. 